Continuing the EMS One series on response to mass violence, in the commander's chair, lessons for the incident commander gleaned from the 7-7-2005 London terrorist attack. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Hello and welcome to One Stop Extra. On today's podcast, I will deliver a full narration of my article that originally appeared online at ems1.com and many other social media platforms. And I'm also going to welcome my guest for the second half, who today is Jason Killens, currently the Chief Executive Officer of the Welsh Ambulance Service. But back in the London 7-7 bombings, Jason was the Assistant Director of Operations of the London Ambulance Service, was at Grand Zero and well in the thick of it. And so more from Jason a little later. But first, on to this week's article. On July the 7th, 2005, in the City of London, four terrorists, in a coordinated suicide attack, separately detonated three homemade bombs in quick succession on board London Underground trains across the city, and later a fourth on a London double-decker bus. A total of 52 citizens were killed on the trains and bus, and more than 700 were injured. For the UK, 7-7, very much like the US 9-11, was one of those moments where you remember what you were doing and where you were on that day. At the time, I was the Executive Director of Operations of the East Anglian Ambulance Service, National Health Trust. Geographically placed to the northeast of London, covering 4,000 square miles and housing a population of 2.2 million people. While not a part of the London Ambulance Service, East Anglian, like all UK ambulance services, was a part of the mutual aid agreement. The UK has regrettably been home to and victim of domestic terrorism because of the Irish Troubles, or the Northern Ireland conflict, for many years, and response to terrorist incidents was sadly not a new experience for many in the higher echelons of EMS leadership. For me, 7-7 started like any other day did, with the meeting with my chief executive, Dr Chris Carney, and other colleagues. Our meeting was interrupted by our emergency manager who informed us that there appeared to be a fire on the tube, essentially notification that the underground network in London was having an issue. We thanked him and carried on our meeting. Just 10 minutes later, the next message caused us to spring into action. The fire was caused by a bomb, and it wasn't one bomb, it was three, and a bus had also exploded on the surface. One nod from my boss and I headed to our emergency medical control centre to take up post in our incident management centre to assume the role of gold commander. In the UK, the incident command structure is described as gold, looking after strategic, silver, looking after the tactical, and bronze, looking after the operational. As with all major incidents, national news networks had responded as quickly as the emergency services, and no sooner than key personnel had been summoned into the planning room than we witnessed the live scenes on the cable news channel Sky from London. Part of the mutual aid plan, as it would be here in the US, was to prepare ambulance units to deploy to the scene itself or to backfill other ambulance services so they in turn could deploy into the incident. 
As on-duty control staff prepared to enact a recall, the power of the media assisted and staff were already calling in to offer their services. Delicate discussions took place as we had to be careful not to select people to come in immediately who were about to go on shift imminently, as this would reduce our ability to respond in our first due areas. We also followed the plan to stand up crews that had recently booked on shift to be part of the London response and backfilled them in their home stations with personnel called in from home. A gentle discussion took place with some staff, keen to do their bit to assist London, who would only volunteer if they could head to the city and wouldn't step forward if they had to go to a local ambulance station and stand by. Not many of those conversations occurred and common sense mostly prevailed. After conversations with the main London Ambulance Service Control Room, it was decided that we would form up packets of ambulances and supervisors and prepare to mobilise to designated rally points outside the city. The considerable effort by our slick and well-drilled emergency managers made this happen with what appeared to be great ease. At the same time we sent units south, we also received support in terms of ambulance crews from the service to the north of us. The simple plan was to move assets from every single service one place to the south. Then we had to identify locations to send arriving units and ensure radio frequencies were correctly selected and local area mapping was appropriately issued as the mapping contained in one service's mobile data terminal did not cover other jurisdictions. Thereafter, interesting issues and incidents occurred that aren't in any playbook and caused us to pause, think, then act. Some of the immediate actions already full London hospitals took was to identify that they may have to create capacity. Hospitals began to arrange to discharge patients and move them out to other facilities providing a step-down level of care. This required the one thing that was heading into the emergency already, ambulances and personnel. Suddenly, there seemed to be a ripple effect travelling up the country as hospitals attempted to empty and called for urgent transport of non-critical patients. This took a little while to filter through. Some hospitals were truly receiving very critical patients into the EDs and thereafter theatres. Others were just taking precautions. In my jurisdiction, we had several of the country's leading specialist hospitals and they were attempting to create spare capacity as well. Because the underground had been targeted, the whole network was suspended and all stations evacuated. At the same time, the National Rail Network also stopped services to and from the city. Like in any major capital city, most of the London workforce commutes in from the suburbs and the primary method of travel is underground to a mainline station, then home. On 7-7, millions of people were effectively stranded for hours in the city and it wasn't until later in the evening that trains rolled again. This led to the second command decision. Knowing that overfilled trains were now bringing workers home to our stations, I authorised the deployment of paramedics to our larger stations to be available on the platforms to help if required. This was met with initial scepticism, but sometimes the command presence of the leader must insist that an action be carried out. This was one of those times. Medics attended and we discovered patients who had been on the very underground trains that had been hit. In their shock, travellers had decided to head home, which entailed leaving the scene, walking to the mainline station and getting on a train. Our medics made bullhorn announcements offering assistance and to our astonishment, people who had slipped the net in downtown London came forward. Here are three things I learnt from the 7-7 London terrorist attack for incident commanders to consider. First, 
In a prolonged major incident, the amount of ambulances truly needed is probably double what you think. The need for the hospital to create space for you to take patients in requires you also to take patients out. If you must evacuate from one hospital to another, first send a liaison officer in to control outflow and ensure patients aren't simply wheeled to the curb. Also work out the loop time of a unit, the time it takes to go to the next hospital, discharge and return. This, when multiplied by the number of ambulances and the number of patients, informs how long it will take to conduct the transfer. The liaison officer is key in ensuring that key staff understand it could be hours before the last patient leaves. Finally, Newton's law of patient evacuation will most probably apply. What goes out must come back. In this case, all I have described occurred under the National Health Service umbrella. Therefore, US-based conundrums of who is paying and when didn't feature. Be prepared for unusual or the unexpected. We know that patients will be transported to the nearest hospital in many forms of transport. In fact, we've come to expect that now. But think about those in shock and where they may go and be prepared to help them. We intercepted patients a hundred miles from the scene of the bomb. Now on to my guest, Jason Killens. Jason has spent his career working in ambulance services in the UK and Australia. He progressed through the ranks of the London Ambulance Service from an emergency medical technician to executive director of operations. He was appointed as chief executive of the South Australia Ambulance Service in 2015 before going to the Welsh Ambulance Service as chief executive in September 2018 and Jason joined me on the line from the UK. Jason, thank you for joining me from the UK. We're eight hours apart in time zones. Uh, so what time is it for you there in uh, in Welsh Wales? Hi, Rob. It's good to be with you. So it's uh, just uh, just about 10 past nine in the evening here in, in a wintry Wales. Yeah. In a wintry Wales. Yes, of course. Well, the sun is shining here in Southern California. So I thought I'd throw that in before we start. Thanks. Um, it makes me feel better. Yeah. Yes, I thought it would do. <laughs> now, of course, we go back a long way, back to the UK, back to being directors of operations and, uh, and on the day. And, and in my article, of course, I reflected on the fact that I was one of those guys outside of town trying to work out ways to assist uh, the operation in town. But also we were then picking up folk as they were coming com coming back up the lines, as it were. But obviously you were the man on the ground on the day. And we should tell everybody that you were at the time the assistant director of operations for the London Ambulance Service. Um, and you were eventually at Oldgate Station, which is was one of the underground or metro tube sites, depending on which side of the pond you're listening on. Um, and so therefore you were there in the thick of it. But I want to go back, first of all, Jason, to go back to how does how did London Ambulance Service and its medics and how did you prepare people for the prospect of a major incident? Because of course London, this wasn't a new thing for London as such, was it, because of terrorism and and the you know the Irish troubles, etc. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, as you say, at the time, uh, I was uh, Deputy Director of Operations in London and London, London Ambulance at the time. So back in, what, 2005, you know, was, was an organisation of, of about 4,000 people um, dealing with about 3,000 emergency calls uh, a, a day. Um, it, the point you make is actually re really important here because whilst we'd never dealt with a multi-sited simultaneous incident uh, in the UK, you know, London Ambulance had never dealt with, dealt with it, other emergency services across the UK had never dealt with a multi-sited simultaneous incident before. We had had, you know, two decades, nearly three decades worth of Irish Republican terrorism and were used to uh, major incidents. 
incidents, you know, arising from uh, from terrorism and from terrorist acts. You know, in the years preceding this, in the in the late nineties, mid and late nineties, there were you know some of the larger uh, Irish Republican uh, detonations in London, the Baltic Exchange, uh, the Canary Wharf site, and so on. So we were used to responding to terrorism and of course major incidents as well be they train crashes and other events sporting uh, events that had occurred so so training was was pretty good um, for our ability to respond to a single sighted incident and, and that training you know was was relevant clearly to to clinical responders so ambulance crews responding on the ground but also to managers in in command roles too uh, but of course where we fell short um, was the complexity uh, of 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 this incident uh, across simultaneous sites um, with what in the end yeah, was about 800 patients um, uh, that, that emerged uh, from, from the various sites across London that morning. So f- for those that aren't too familiar, obviously people have vivid memories of 9-11 here, but uh, can you sort of paint us the picture of, you know, the, the, what in, ter- in, in the end was four locations uh, all at once to deal with? Where yeah, were they? Right. In, you know, their locations relative. Yeah, to each that's other. right. So this was this was a weekday morning, just before nine o'clock, uh, in in central London. Uh, there are a number of uh, devices which exploded underground. Uh, suicide uh, devices which exploded underground on tube trains and one on a bus um, uh, also detonated. So uh, the first one was uh, just before uh, nine o'clock, about 8.51 that morning, uh, we started to get uh, reports of an incident uh, at Liverpool Street Station. So that's in the eastern side uh, of of London uh, and in the heart of the financial district, the city of London. and then shortly after that, we began to get further calls for uh, an incident at Allgate, uh, uh, which is also in the east, at Edgware Road in the in the west, uh, and also at King's Cross uh, in in the central area, kind of north central area of central London. And then shortly after that, uh, just about an hour after that, actually, um, uh, just before 10 a.m., uh, we uh, had incidents being reported for the bus explosion in 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 uh, Russell Square. Uh, so so all up as you say four detonations four four devices um, but multiple incident sites because each of those sites of course if you think about this those three certainly that were underground they had two incidents or three incident scenes essentially you had you know you had the the tube train the carriage and and the the carriage is either side where the detonation took place and then you had casualties uh, and patients emerging at either end of the of, of the tunnel so uh, for argument's sake, the Liverpool Street incident and the Allgate incident were actually one and the same, um, but they were reported to us as two separate incidents because we had patients from the train underground between those two stations coming up at either end. Uh, so, so there was a lot of information uh, coming in very, very rapidly and a confused and complex, uh, complex um, you know, set of circumstances that in, in the first you know, couple of hours we were, we were seeking to make sense of. That's and that's something I always go back and talk about is what I describe as the fog of war, where the information is not absolutely accurate yet. It, it can be skewed. It can be inaccurate. Um, but on the day, and of course, you 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 know, as as I said in the article, you haven't got one bomb. You've got four. How did you actually? unclear that fog of war how did you make sense of it all what was as as the senior guy on the ground there how did you make sense of it all well i mean i, I was as you said I, I was one of the one of the uh incident managers that was uh sent 
uh, to uh, Allgate initially, but I ended up back at our headquarters shortly afterwards. Of course, I mean, this was a massive team, you know, team event. We had hundreds of staff uh, deployed right across London on this, not only in the initial response, but in the subsequent, uh, you know, in the subsequent days as well. And of course, two weeks later, we had a further attempt, didn't we, on the, on the 21st of, yep. 1st of July as well. Um, uh, so, so many, many people involved. But initially, as you say, uh, I, I was uh, resp responded to Aldgate, um, but then back at headquarters, uh, where we were uh, at the time, we had a single 999 control room, so a sin single emergency uh, control room for London. Uh, and all of the information was coming in there. Uh, and we were seeking to make sense of that information uh, on, on an incident site by incident site basis. So understanding, you know, what the access and egress was, what the reports of the casualty numbers and types were, um, you know, hazards and so on that were associated with that. Because that, that was really complex because it was coming in at pace. We'd never dealt with, um, you know, the, the, a multi-sited uh, simultaneous incidents. And of course, one of the key lessons which came out of um, you know, our internal investigations and indeed the inquiries and inquests uh, after the inquest afterwards was, was around um, managing critical information and preparedness for managing multi-site incidents. So, so complex and difficult uh, and it took quite a while uh, to, to uh, make sense of all of that information that was coming in. And again, a, a, a finding from the 9-11 inquiry, of course, the first casualty was communication. And so it's one of those things that uh, I think, you know, any any takeaway or any training session needs to really hammer home the fact that it's going to be tough because of the this fog of war, because of not having a, a, a picture. But you've got to get the, the, the key information enough to make a, a decision or two along the way fairly early on. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I mean, any any you know any major incident will have a have an initial period where you know resources are responding to seeing commanders back at um, you know individual emergency service headquarters are trying to make sense of the information that's coming in and ensure the right resources are being sent to scene. And you know, in our case, in this in, in on this day, business as usual is also continuing because we've still got people having heart attacks and asthma attacks and car crashes and so on across the other 620 square miles. Uh, of, of the capital. So um, you've got the incident to respond to, but business as usual also to, to continue, albeit constrained um, as a result of, you know, response plans to, to support the incident. But of course, one other aspect of this was, was mutual aid, um, right. which added another dimension and complexity we had lots of mutual aid coming from surrounding county ambulance services and from the voluntary sector, which was very, 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 you know, much, much appreciated and well received. Um, so we had that additional dimension where, of course, we were seeking to deploy uh, those resources either to incident sites or to maintain the business as usual response to emergency calls still going on, on across London. And that was one of my memories of the day that I think the entire United Kingdom moved down one county in order to uh, we, we sent folk out we actually took folk in and we were you know away from London but uh, as we backfilled we too were backfilled ourselves which I thought mm. was impressive that, that that happened and and I credit our emergency managers actually for you know being on the ball with that stuff because that seemed to happen almost seamlessly mm. um, which is pretty cool um the guys on the ground, of course, had some horrific things to deal with, and uh, you know we've seen some of the images of people coming out of the out of the stations, particularly. Um, what was the immediate action once it had sort of slowed down, calmed down, in terms of looking after and and, and checking on the staff? 
Yeah, well, I mean, as as was part of our major, the, the, I say part of our part of the London Ambulance major incident plan at the time, a hot debrief was held. We actually used a football stadium to do it in. Um, so all of the crews uh, and managers, uh, other clinicians that had responded to scenes were were taken off of off of active duty, sent to the sent to the uh, to the football stadium where we could you know firstly deal with welfare feed and water people but also talk to people about their experience and the immediate lessons identified begin a process of support for those individuals and and there were you know I, I left LAS in 2015 so 10 years after this occurred um, and there were staff uh, then um, you know small numbers but but there were staff then still receiving support for some of the things that they dealt with on those days you know they saw horrific things um and of course it wasn't just a single patient there were multiple patients that they were dealing with in, in really 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 difficult circumstances um so so on the day we tried to uh, we tried to identify, you know, quick, quickly uh, any lessons that we needed to put in place should there be further incidents, you know, later that day, the following day, or as it turned out a couple of weeks later, um, uh, but also start to identify where we needed to put to wrap, you know, put wraparound support in for, for individual people um, that, that needed it. Um, so, so not, you know, not, not necessarily as perhaps... Um, targeted as you might have wanted it to be given it was a mass you know hot deep brief for hundreds of people uh but but you know a necessary process if you like to start the support uh for for our people uh, as and when they needed it you said something very interesting there jason that last week i was talking as i said before we started recording to joe o'hare who is the superintendent boston ems and he was there for the boston marathon bomb and when they got to the point of things are slowing down and he's checking on the staff actually the one thing they all wanted and this this is Americanized and you can apply the British version of this, but they just wanted a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. you know, yep. and obviously tea, tea in, in, in your case, but uh, tea and a bacon roll, tea and a bacon roll. well, <laughs> coffee in a subway here, but even yeah. so the, yeah. uh, it was it's the same thing as I, I just need a coffee just to help me, you know, stop de-stress for a second and maybe get my, my head in order. But uh, tea and coffee clearly are a key consideration on the, on the day. Of course, moving on then, the inevitable inquest inquiry um, and, you know, a lot of people standing in front of coroners and, and uh, uh, medical examiners to use American parlance here. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, was there much finger pointing or was there much understanding? And what, what came out of that inquiry that, that eventually led to hopefully, you know, changes of practice? Yeah, so there, there were quite a few changes of practice, which we can we can perhaps get into. I mean, yeah. the inquiries happened. The inquiry, um, yeah, it was it was an inquest, but it was essentially a public inquiry in all but name. Uh, happened at the Royal Courts of Justice some years later, uh, over a number of months. Um, and of course, in that intervening time, we'd done a detailed uh, analysis of our response. Um, you know, identified, and we were very open about this at the time. Uh, you know, very open about shortcomings where that where where they existed um uh, and we identified quite early on a number of key things that we wanted to change and improve as a result of that so by the time we got to the inquests um a number of years later five five or so years later um uh, we, we were able to to not only share a detailed picture of what happened but also set out uh, a, a number of the changes that we'd already put in place um uh, to improve responses to, to you know similar incidents in the future, um, so so I think yeah we, we went into the organisation at the time went into the uh, inquiry um, uh, 
uh, very open, you know, with a very open mind, recognizing that there were shortcomings uh, and things that we could have done better uh, as an organization. But, you know, given the unprecedented circumstances we were dealing with, um, we just never, um, you know, trained and equipped uh, our headquarters buildings and our people uh, for, for such responses. Um, uh, but, but as I say, we, yeah, we were able to demonstrate good progress on a number of key actions. Uh, you know, one that springs to mind uh, is that um, because of a difficulty with one of the sites and, and uh, delays in, uh, in frontline emergency ambulance resources, uh, responding to that, we changed the major incident plan uh, and put in place what we called a predetermined attendance. So, so that said that uh, if a major incident is declared by any member of our staff, uh, and of course an incident can be declared by a frontline clinician or a right. control room manager um, you know, on receipt of a 999 call, um, uh, we would automatically send 20 ambulances to scene. Uh, rather than waiting for someone to call them in on declaration of an incident, they would automatically be sent. So that's just one quite simple but quite material change that was made um, to ensure that we didn't bump into those same challenges again in the future. I'm glad you said that in the article. I note that uh, think of the amount of ambulances you may need, then double it. So yeah. uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so obviously we are now in a different type of major incident right now in COVID. And let's just jump forward for a second to the, the present day. Uh, and so everybody knows that uh, Jason moved from London uh, over to Australia. Like me, you got itchy international feet. I did. Uh, and then came back to a different country, which of course is Wales, and you are the chief executive of the Welsh Ambulance Service. Um, how are you coping with the current major incident which of course is COVID? Yeah I mean so it's interesting isn't it of course but this is a very protracted uh, major incident for all right. of us to deal Absolutely. with um, so that brings with it different challenges uh, and of course none of us have dealt with a global pandemic before have we you know that the, no. the, the you know that the most recent experience would have been a hundred years ago there or thereabouts um, so we haven't we haven't got a playbook necessarily for this um, but I think the, you know, certainly in the early days for us here, um, yeah, and I'll, I'll speak about the situation here in Wales, but of course it's similar with other ambulance services across the UK. Um, you know, in, in the early days, we saw uh, quite a lot of changes occurring to, you know, guidance for personal protective equipment and so on, as we started to understand more about the virus and how it was spread and how it worked and so on, and the risks to our people. Um, and of course, though, that, that, you know, created anxiety and, and, and a certain amount of frustration uh, amongst the workforce. But I have to say, um, everyone here and across ambulance services in the UK, you know, I'm connected um, closely with with uh, with chief executives across the other UK ambulance services. You know, everyone stepped up, did what was necessary, and got on with it. Rob, I, I think, and that's a common trait that we see in major incidents. You know, be, be it you know this this current pandemic pr protracted now over what nine or ten months, and, and probably a few more to come, uh, or, or your you know your major incident from a train crash, truck train crash, or a or or a terrorist explosion. You know, people get on with it and do what they need to do, uh, and we've very much seen that um, uh, seen that here. Um, we've got. You know, COVID for us is is still quite heavy in the community. We've got some areas across the country where we're seeing cases rising, but uh, the activity that we're dealing with of kind of COVID symptomatic patients on a day-to-day -day basis is pretty stable. 
Um, and, you know, a few months in now, we've settled, our people have settled into those new working arrangements with PPE and distancing and, you know, vehicle cleaning and so on. So um, we're, we're pretty settled now. We've regrettably lost a couple of our people, um, you know, sadly lost a couple of our people to COVID uh, through through the pandemic, as other services have too. Uh, we've had, you know, quite a few people that have been, you know, seriously ill uh, too. So you've got that other dimension. Yeah, we're not only caring for our patients we're caring for our own people as well um, and that's probably been something we, we, we have focused quite hard uh, on um, how we can you know uh, increase the welfare support for our people in different circumstances uh, and that's just not about their health necessarily but it's, sometimes it's about the well-being and their family circumstances with caring responsibilities and so on so um uh, you know, lots to learn from this, um, but different challenges because of the protracted nature, I think, of what we're dealing with. And I, I'm so glad you said all of that. You, you and I have been around the world a bit, and obviously we realise that, you know, the paramedics lot in one country is almost the same as the paramedics lot in another country. And certainly one of the things that's been happening here is everybody's get, everybody's been getting stuck in the amount of ancillary extra tasks that EMS and ambulance services have been running here. Uh, to use the English phrase, we've been the jack of all trades. We have been augmenting emergency departments. We've been augmenting nursing and care homes, um, doing testing, uh, tracking and tracing. Uh, I suspect we're about to become part of the mass vaccination rollout system. Uh, there's nothing that we're not doing right now. And I think, you know, from what you've just said, that uh, it's, you know, almost a global ambulance paramedic trait to be there and get on with it. But obviously, the, the penalty is that, uh, you know, we've got to make sure that our people are looked after at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And of course, I mean, you know, we've we've we, you know, we've got practical people, haven't we? You know, our right. people join 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 ambulance services to go out and help people. That's why we all join. I fundamentally believe that. You know, that the the reason why people join is to is to help patients. You know, treat treat people, look after people. But we do that in a very practical way. Um, so so you know, in this in the pandemic, you know, as you as you've just said, in the US experience, much of that is true here. You've got ambulance services in the UK now providing you know test mobile testing units and so on things we wouldn't have dreamt of doing 18 months exactly. ago but skills because of we because we've got you know regional or national infrastructure you know command and control arrangements you know call handling arrangements um you know we, we're a mobile workforce um we, we can do all those things and it's a part we can play in supporting the rest of the health system which is you know with something which is unprecedented but we have to support our people um uh, at the same time Exceptionally wise words, Jason, and, and to those, and we actually have people from the UK and Australia that do listen. So, you know, we're all in this together in our in our profession of uh, of EMS. And as I keep telling people, this is not a job, this is a way of life and we're living it globally. Um, so, Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to, to do that. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day we can have you back and, and chat some more. But for the moment, Jason Killens, thank you very much. Thanks a day, Rob. Great chat with Jason there, and if you have any thoughts or comments, please leave them in the comments section on the main article at ems1.com. Uh, that's about all for now. I can be followed on Twitter at UKRobL or over on LinkedIn. Uh, that's it. I've been Rob Lawrence. Thank you to my guest, Jason Killens. If you're on the SoundCloud, just hang on for another few seconds, because coming right up, as always, is another great episode of Inside EMS with Chris and Kelly. So until next time, bye for now. Oh,